So if there's something that you have to do mm. and or there's a task that you have to do and you're not doing it, um, there may be you may have an implicit bias against doing it for some reason. And that may be what's driving a procrastination mm. or it may be driving how you feel about the thing that you're doing. So if if in an investigation context, if you are, you know, if you don't like doing sexual harassment, you are automatically turned off by the idea of doing them. You're probably going to be biased against the outcome of, of it being true. Uh, so you're going to be biased against what the person who is reporting is telling you because you don't want to do it anyway. Um, and so that applies across the board with anything that you do, with any task that you have to do. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm here today with Dr. Tracy Pearson, and uh, we are going to talk about how does bias impact workplace investigations. Dr. Pearson, so glad to have you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, Dr. Pearson, uh, with almost two decades of experience bringing and defending complex legal matters on behalf of litigants in state and federal court, Dr. Pearson excels in analyzing problems from multiple perspectives. She's an expert in investigations and postmortem assessment of investigations in all domains, including workplaces, child welfare, or government. Her research incorporates law, organizational change theory, pedagogical theory, history, pop culture, and neuroscience, to name only some of the disciplines Dr. Pearson drew from when she wrote, After a Neutral and Impartial Investigation, Implicit Bias in Internal Workplace Investigations, which sounds really like a little bit complicated, and I'm sure like we'll, we'll get into those like um, bits and pieces. But I am really interested, and I know uh, that our audience uh, at first it sounds specific. The idea of impartiality in matters of justice, in terms of investigation, is just—I mean, that's an that's an old question, right? But it's also one of the biggest questions we can we can deal with. So, thank you so much for coming on the show. Glad to have you. you if you could give us just a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got interested in this. Uh, I'm sure that people would love to hear the background on that. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My background, you, you know, you did a great job of, of talking about my, my bio. Um, I, I have chased uh, what I was going to be when I was when I grew up for a long time. I'm still chasing it. Um, and so when, you know, I started out wanting to be a teacher, uh, actually, I I think I started out wanting to be a Navy fighter pilot. Um, <laughs> and then and then I decided I didn't want to do that. Um, and I wanted to, uh, eventually, um, I was, I was interested in the music industry. Uh, I played electric bass and I, I, you know, I, I actually went to school for about a year, mm. um, in college for, for music merchandising, um, in New York and switched to English, um, and relocated again, um, and wanted to teach. I did a little bit of high school teaching and went, mm, I don't want to do that. And so uh, jumped to college teaching um, and I was headed down that road and I had a professor in graduate school uh, at Syracuse University who we had a long conversation and um, long story short, uh, you know, sitting around in an office, you know, coming up with ideas that didn't ha impact anybody um, mm -hmm. that were just ideas didn't seem to me to be a, a great use of my skill set. Um, I was a doer. Yeah. Uh, and so I, uh, he said, you ought to try law school. So let's do an independent study. 
So, you know, go find a law professor. Well, by that afternoon, I had a law professor and a book list and I was I was auditing a law class, you know, the next term. Um, and I was like, yep, no, this is where I should be. Applied to law school on a whim, uh, walked in, uh, took the LSAT like the day of, you know, I didn't study or anything. <laughs> got a score, applied, got in, uh, went to law school. And my first day, it was like, ah, you know, it was like Nirvana. It was amazing. Um, I, I was where I belong. Yeah. Um, wanted to litigate, uh, wanted to go into big law. 9-11 happened. Big law stopped hiring. Uh, big law was paying people to stay home. I had a, a classmate who um, ended up getting paid one hundred and thirty nine thousand dollars to stay home because of of the fact that they had given an offer she had accepted and they couldn't they, they, they couldn't expand because, you know, there was such a tamp down on on industry. So um, uh, I went and took a, a job at a small law firm. And uh, then worked my way into sort of, you know, working with most of the partner's clients and then um, realizing I was being paid too little, left, opened my own law firm and uh, started chasing things there. Yeah. So uh, I got really interested in investigations. Mm. Um, I started doing stuff for the court system and, and basically investigating anything you could think of. Um, everything from child welfare issues, parenting issues to to people stealing money from from yes. estates right um and uh did workplace investigations and there came a point in my life where i needed to stop practicing law i litigated uh, for almost two decades um it it's the type of thing that after you finish a trial you throw yourself on the floor and you're like oh, yeah, i can't do that again yep. i mean it's just exhausting and i think clients don't necessarily understand that yeah um it, you know you take on your client's problem um, and as, as if it's your own, if you do it well, that's my, my, my bias. Yeah. Um, and, and then it just kills you. It just kills your, your mental, you know, it zaps you of all mental energy. It zaps your physical strength. You're on alert for, you know, however many days the trial is going, you're up, you know, 24 hours sometimes. Um, and you, you know, you're constantly rethinking strategy and stuff and it was just exhausting. And so I, um, that coupled with, I had been diagnosed with asthma, late onset asthma mm. and being in dirty courtrooms aggravated it. And so it, it was just like, okay, I'm tired of sucking on the inhaler. Yeah. I, I got to really focus here. So I really focused on investigations, moved to California, took a job and looked around me, thought I, 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 I had, I, and I do, but I, but I had the skill set that I needed, but there was really something wrong with the way investigations were being done. Mm. I really wrong. And I couldn't figure out what it was and it was really unnerving. And so I went back to where I started and went to grad school. I had a doctorate in law. I went back to law, went back to grad school and I got a doctorate in uh, education, um, specifically in organizational change and leadership. Mm. And the way this program worked is it allowed me to pick what's called a problem of practice. So a problem that you want to solve. And um, I picked, um, I, I was trying to pick something around workplace investigations. Initially, I started with sort of harassment and bullying because I'm fascinated by that too. I'm fascinated by why that happened. Yeah. Um, especially with adults. Yes. Um, and <laughs> yeah, kids, like, like, it makes sense, right? Yeah, but. It, it, kids don't know any better. They don't have, right. you know, this cacophony of life experience. And so why are they behaving this way? But but adults, why do they do what they do? Why are they so nasty to each other, particularly um, in workplaces? But what I ended up 
talking about was uh, investigations and realizing that what was happening, the things that I was seeing uh, were all implicit bias. And so I searched high and low, up and down, sideways. I mean, I looked everywhere. I spent, I created Google alerts. I mean, you name it, I did it. And no one had conducted a study on implicit bias in workplace investigation. And I said, hmm, I think I'll do one. So I conducted a study uh, on implicit bias in workplace investigations. And uh, the information that, that, that came out of it wasn't, I, I suppose, given what I know about it, wasn't shocking, but it was. Um, and, you know, we talk about um, in, in investigations, um, you know, that we're neutral and impartial. Nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah. So that's how I ended up where I am. And, and, and ultimately, um, you know, I was interested in, in pursuing, um, you know, becoming a legal analyst on television. And I had started making strides towards doing that. Um, and um, the combination of all these things coming together and swirling ended up really blasting me forward yeah. into doing television and, and now hosting a show and, and stuff like that. So um, Which I have congratulations. a live show. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. It's, 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 it is a learning, you know, and it's fun. It's a learning experience. Like I know, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I learn something every day, yes. you know, it's like, Oh, so that's how that works. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> now. So, uh, remind, forgive me. And I, I didn't catch it on here. What's the name of the show? Sure. Um, it's called deep dive with Dr. Tracy. Um, it's on ENSL TV. Um, and, uh, it's a, it's a weekly show. Uh, it's an hour long, um, think of it as, uh, you know, sort of, it's, it's like a Rachel Maddow type show in the sense that I'm trying to, to sort of move the needle on the knowledge meter, um, towards more. Um, but what, what it really is, is me bringing forward experts to, to talk about things so that, that we put, you know, good, uh, solid factual information into the environment as opposed to, um, political punditry. Um, and it's, a you know, it's an hour long. My last <clears throat> episode of the year was uh, I had Dr. Stephen Hassan on, who is the world's foremost expert on destructive cults and mind control. He wrote the book, The Cult of Trump. Um, and so uh, that I got him as a guest yeah. was like a huge get. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, and then I also appear in that that came after me uh, getting a gig uh, on being uh, I'm on a, a talk panel uh, once a week. Um, it is uh, called the Power Hour talk panel, and we debate what's going on in the news. And, you know, there's a bunch of us um, and it's watched and, and if people comment on it and it's, you know, it's, it's we talk about all the controversial stuff and we fight with each other and it's yeah. great. Um, but, but my show is sort of more, it's an attempt to try to educate the populace because I don't think there's enough of that being done. Yeah. I mean, uh, definite, uh, moment of connection there, uh, in a lot of ways, that's what I'm trying to do with this, right? Like it's, um, political punditry, you know, I, I love, uh, there's uh, several phrases there moving the needle on the knowledge meter. I'm definitely stealing that. Like, uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, really, really like that. That's awesome. Uh, you know, it's fascinating. I was telling um, my wife that uh, we were uh, going to do this podcast today, and her response was, "Wait, they haven't done the, a study on that." 
Like, you know what I mean? Like when you met, I was like, that, I, cause I remember it shocked me and watching the, uh, from the outside, that reaction, you know, where she was like, she was like, how has that not been done? You know, like we're what, 40, 50 years into at least like you'd think collating this stuff and no, not even close. So well, we, go ahead. Yeah. And, and trial lawyers, you know, for years, I mean, we're talking years, yeah. years and years and years have been trying these employment cases. And what they've tried to do is bring sociologists and folks in and put them on the stand as experts to try to do a correlation. Yeah. So, you know, over here you see implicit bias. So therefore it follows that there was implicit bias here. Nobody has done a freaking study. Yeah. And I don't have any idea why. The the closest thing I got was a law review article that had that first of all I disagreed with, but it was a law review article that had no study to it. It was just sort of analyzing some stuff. It was the closest thing. And and like my my dissertation chair looked high and low and sideways as yeah. well. And we're just like, well, I guess you're the first. And that was daunting. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And then people don't realize, I think one of the things is there's this illusion of great data. And for people who have never collected uh, data, they don't understand um, how empty it is and how hard it is and how dirty it is, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. what I'm reading, I, I just did an interview with Dr. Lewis Gordon. Um, he's the head of philosophy at UConn. And, uh, I was reading in his book and he did, uh, he's, uh, a black man grew up in the Bronx and he was talking about, he went to do studies on police brutality and the numbers were shockingly low. And he's like, this doesn't fit at all with my experience, all the stories that I, from everyone I know. And then when you look at all the data, all the data is based off of um, uh, police convictions, which of course is like, I, and you know, and I'm not here to start an argument about that. And you know, uh, if you're listening, what the important thing is that you can't, <laughs> this is, this will get into the impartiality of it. You can't ask the people who are in charge, <laughs> who, who are being like the, the ones that are being charged as the ones to keep track of the data for it. It's like, that's like, it's a clear conflict of interest. Right. And it's, right. so it's just like, and I'm sure we're going to run into those kind of moments as we talk about this. Um, what would be the best way to talk about the study? So when you, when you think about, uh, when you started this, uh, what are the results that you found most interesting? What was your method as you, you walk sure. through this? Sure. Let me start out with the method. Yeah. So um, I came at it from um, that, that this is a, a, an, a knowledge problem or rather an education problem to be solved. Um, and, and so uh, I was looking at it using uh, Clark and Estes uh, gap analysis model. So um, what was the, the knowledge of, of uh, and I was focusing on for, for the written study that I've written, it's, it's focused on internal, but I collected data for both um, internal and external right. investigators. I remember you mentioning that. Yeah. So the, uh, the, the question was, what is, what is the, the knowledge of internal investigators about implicit bias? Um, what is um, the uh, motivation for doing the work? Uh, why are you in a, 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 a workplace investigator? And um, what organizational factors um, are either mitigating or aggravating um, implicit bias in workplace investigation? So I was looking at it as, as a knowledge, motivation, and organizational factor issue. 
um, all three of these components sort of working on this problem. Um, and the, the method was, it, it was, it, you know, it was, it was a mixed method study. So I did, uh, a survey, uh, that I wrote myself that included also a psychological assessment, um, on social desirability that was embedded within it that had a, uh, very strong, uh, 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 reliability, uh, and validity factor. Um, I abandoned the IAT, which is the implicit association test, which has just all sorts of really, it's, 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 it's ubiquitous and it is actually so flawed because all it does is test time, like time reaction. Um, and so what I went with was social desirability. Is that, um, um, which got, forgive me for interrupting. Is that like they put pictures on screen and you have to hit different keys? Yeah, the IAT, it comes out of, I don't know exactly who wrote it, but it's, it's hosted on this Harvard site and, and I don't want to, you know, cast aspersions on it, but it, it, everybody, it's, there's been, a, there's literally two schools that fight with each other constantly of yes. thought that are just like, this is garbage, this is great, this is garbage, this is great. Yep. Um, and really what it comes down to is, is it can be pictures or it can be words. And, yes. and what happens on the screen is there's, you know, they'll, sh it's insects or flowers. And then it, what they're trying to do is get you to, they're trying to capture the and they switch them around and they switch the words around on the on the page like positive negative bad good whatever whatever the words because there's different iterations of this thing out yes. there um it's very much open code um and so the idea is what they're trying to do is is how and you're supposed to do it as fast as possible you have like two fingers on a keyboard that you're trying to do this with and which what you're trying to do is capture what's sort of this this overhang it's saying it was sort of like a hangover of, of effect of, I see something and then I apply my thoughts and feelings about that to this next thing that's completely unrelated. And somehow that sort of captures, if that makes sense, um, an implicit bias uh, that is part of, of your thought process. And the argument against it, <clears throat> and the reason why I, I didn't use it, um, because I think it's a very strong argument, based on some of the data to come out um, in other studies, because there's studies about the study, you know, of course, is yeah. that <laughs> um, is that it is testing your reaction time. And the more times you take it, the faster you get at doing it, that you're the implicit bias, that thing that they're trying to, to test, it, it, it gets it gets less. And so really, you're testing someone's reaction time and not not their um, their mental thought process. Right. Um, I had thought about creating one like it, yeah, but it required way too much coding that I just didn't have time for. Yeah, um, yeah. I have, um, I have taken it. Yeah, and so I, ha I I hated yeah. it. <laughs> it felt really weird. I like I didn't really. I, I'm not good with uh, reflex type games, anyways. My wife kills me at Dutch Blitz and games like that. So I, I it was the most nerve wracking experience. And uh, I would start thinking about something else, which is just like typical of me anyways. And then I'm like, wait, did I just record something that I'm like horribly, you know, I have this horrible implicit bias. Um, yeah, no, it's sorry. That was just, I no, was like, no, as you were no. describing it, I was like, I have taken that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you were having, you were having like a trigger response. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it, it, I don't, I've taken it. I, you know, I didn't like it. I didn't like the way it worked. I thought, God, this is going to be too hard. <laughs> so, um, I, I, and it's not going to help. It's not yeah. going to help. It's going to be attacked by the people who, who attack that test. Right. I don't want to do that. I want this to be incredibly valid. So, um, what I did was I went with a social desirability test. Mm -hmm. Um, and so embedded within that survey without them knowing 
um, was a a series of questions where, um, you know, it, 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 things like, you know, um, I never litter. And you're supposed to say true or false. And so there's a series of things. Um, and, and what it's testing is, you know, there's a sort of an average out there. Um, and it's testing how how likely um, you are to, like, give answers that uh, that make you look good yeah. versus, you know, sort of truthful stuff. Like everybody's dropped a gum wrapper on the ground. Right. Um, and so yeah. it's it's testing that sort of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, generally speaking, what it found was that it, it, workplace investigators, whether you're internal or external, um, that you you tended to lean in the direction of wanting to be perceived as socially desirable. Mm. And that became important in the study for understanding uh, um, why investigators um, will do what the organization who hired them wants them to do. Right. And they won't stand up and say, wait a minute. No, this is what the evidence says. This is what we're going to do. And if we have to fire the vice president of whatever, then that's what we're going to do. Um, you know, that this was the finding. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it somewhat explains a little piece of, 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 of why people who are in power get to skirt the, the, you know, the, the, the ramifications or accountability. Um, so that was embedded in there. Mm -hmm. Um, there was questions embedded in there about things about, uh, I, my favorite series of questions, actually, um, they work together. Um, and they were just declaratory statements with nothing more. So, for example, most um, allegations of, of sex-based harassment or discrimination are usually true. And you had to pick on a, on a scale of either, um, you know, definitely yes, yes, uh, neither yes nor no, uh, some, you know, maybe yes, something like that. It was like, you know, this five, five scale um, uh, uh, gradient. And what happens is that, that the only right answer to this question is neither yes nor no. Mm. If you're, if you have, if you don't have a bias, every other answer indicates that you have a bias because when you look at the question, the question has no facts. Yeah. So it's based on your opinion about most of these cases. And so you have to be aware that you have that bias mm -hmm. and and you have to correct for it. So really what the study was testing was not every most investigators have a book knowledge, understanding of implicit bias, but they don't have applied knowledge. They don't understand how it comes out in their in 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 their work and where it can hide. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, so that's that's one thing. Um, the other set of the other question and that was my favorite was I gave them uh, like a series. I can't remember, maybe 12, uh, words, they were adjectives, um, or feelings, they were emotions. So I feel, uh, you know, happy, sad, frustrated, um, indifferent mm -hmm. was a word I put in there. And, um, and, you know, they were basically all binary and, uh, they were mixed up and I asked them to, without, without more. Uh, without any other whatever, I said, I want you to select all of the feelings that you've ever had conducting investigation. Not one investigation, not two, not your first, not your last, all. And at any time. And their response was to pick indifferent the least amount of times. 
So they, they apparently have never felt neutral. Because the dictionary definition of indifferent is neutral. Um, and I found that just shocking and wonderfully, in some ways, revealing, um, given the way that the other questions were answered. Um, one of the, the biggest finds that came out of the internal uh, data, so the internal investigator data, was that, um, you know, there's this narrative out there that men don't believe women, like men don't believe sexual assault happens mm -hmm. or sexual harassment happens. And what the data showed was that men believe women more than women believe women. When I started to analyze the demographics on it, mm. um, that to me um, was huge yeah. that these these male investigators were more likely to believe, have an implicit bias that this was true. Yeah. Um, and women were much harsher, which makes complete sense when you understand things like Queen B syndrome which came out of the 70s. And basically, in a nutshell, um, keep women in, in authority are much harsher on women who are, are lower than them in the hierarchy. Uh, and there's been lots of studies on that. Interesting. So, um, it, you know, the, the, what the study demonstrated was that it, it, workplace investigators are not neutral. They don't understand how it creeps up in their, in their investigations. Um, they also told me 95% of the time that their organization interferes in their investigation. So, you know, the, the people who hire them to do this work are telling them what to do, uh, you know, when they're supposed to be independent, you know, and, and so what it did was it, it established and, and I worked really, really hard with my committee and my dissertation chair, um, to make sure that this was valid and reliable. Um, in every way, um, because it was so important. And it, that, that what it established was that, that there is a problem and that the lawyers were right. There's a problem. Yeah. And, um, and so out of that came a bunch of recommendations. And, you know, one of the recommendations was a conceptual model uh, for training um, that I developed. So how you would train, we don't train people correctly. Um, but how you would train an investigator um, or anyone else, frankly, um, to recognize implicit bias in, in a in a contextual uh, situation as opposed to just like, hey, this is what implicit bias is. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I came up with a, a toolkit um, on how to analyze your organization and figure out where implicit bias is hiding. Um, in your organization's uh, compliance structure. Um, I um, also uh, recommended that we needed to have policies and procedures that made sense. Um, that's sort of the shorthand of it. Um, but that made sense when it came to when an investigator felt that the organization was interfering in their investigation so that they would be able to do something about it and not just move in that direction of social desirability um, because the reality is, is that there are people who are so dependent on the outcomes of these investigations they're the people who have been accused they're the people who who are, are doing the accusing um, and they are their 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 lives in many cases are depending on the outcome of this yeah and and the power that you hold as an investigator is enormous and you need to understand you know when you're you're mind is is abusing it um and 
I, you know, I also came up with a different definition of, of, um, of implicit bias because I didn't think it was accurate. I, I really wanted to understand where it came from and what it, what it was. And so I did a lot of neuroscience research to find that out. Okay. So tell us what would be your definition then of implicit bias? Cause I think that's a, a that, that's obviously yeah. very important to what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, implicit bias generally is understood as the unconscious beliefs uh, that guide our actions. And that just doesn't do it justice. Um, what it really is, is a survival mechanism. It's, a, it's the unconscious beliefs uh, that act as a survival mechanism um, as a result of uh, what's called pattern detection and probability determination, uh, which is how your brain processes information um, that, uh, you know, that um informs how you uh you know how you're going to make your decisions about essentially what to do next now, that's a paraphrase about what i wrote but but ultimately my definition incorporates neuroscience because um you know for i don't know how long i mean i guess ever since racism started right um that that we've had racism and racism well, this is racism we gotta fix it it's racism we gotta fix it oh okay it's racism we have to fix it okay tell me how Mm-hmm. Oh, well, here's the thing. Here's how your brain works, right? Your brain, your entire life has picked up data and it's picking up data 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Even while you're sleeping, it's picking up data. It's searching and looking for information and it's categorizing that information into, you can use the term buckets, you can turn it into boxes, however you want to call it. Bins, you know, across the ocean, they'll use the term bin. Um, but your brain is putting it into categories. It's also... Um, engaging in the fastest blackjack game that you have ever played in that it is taking the information in, trying to figure out where to put it and trying to decide what to do with it. Yeah. So when you're in a given situation and you are, you are taking in data through all of your sen- that senses, your, your brain is trying to figure out what is it, where do I put it and how do I, how, what do I tell the body to do with it? And so all of that collides and that came out of um, a couple of studies. Uh, one in particular uh, dealt with, and it was a basic, these studies are so basic and they're so important. Yeah. Came out of a study where a um, uh, they were looking for something else, really. Um, but what they learned uh, was that these people were asked to come and sit in an MRI machine. And they were shown a series of pictures, and about 12 of them. And they were asked to guess what the next picture was. Simultaneously, they're taking a you know a snapshot of the brain, and um, they were trying to guess what the next picture was going to be, but they had to do it quickly. And for everyone they got right, uh, they you know got a monetary uh, incentive. So there was there was a uh, an interest it created for doing it right. well and doing it accurately. Right. Okay. So um, so that way that the, the people were committed to doing it and. As they laid there and as these pictures came across, what they realized was that pattern detection and probability determination happen at the same time. And so really what it comes down to is that your brain hasn't changed since the first model that came out. The software, you know, that's that's operating it, basically, it's the same version that you always had. Um, it's taking in information. And back when we were trying to save ourselves from tigers. Yeah. Um, that made sense. It was, we were a much simpler time, but now with the massive quantities of information we've taken in over our lifetimes and take in on a daily basis, um, 
the brain, it makes mistakes. It's not infallible. And so I'm not saying that racism is a mistake, okay? Because there's a difference between implicit bias and direct bias. There are people who are racist that know they're racist. They won't say they are, but they, they, they are right. racist. They know they have a bias. That's right. a direct bias. But then there are people that, that engage in things like microaggression. You know, um, they make statements that they don't recognize as being racist. Yeah. And that is um, that's an implicit bias that is somehow uh, been created as a result of a, a of that probability determination and pattern detection over their lifetime. So um, the way that you fix it is you become aware of it. Um, and one of the things to come out of my study also was. Um, I, um, I did something n novel apparently. And where I said, I think that when you're interviewing an, an, a person in an investigation that you should tell them, hi, I'm not infallible. I, I am very much fallible. And, um, I have implicit bias. You have implicit bias. We all have implicit bias. So if I say something to you, mm -hmm. if, if I ask you a question where you feel that I am engaging in bias, I want you to stop me and tell me that I know. Yeah, because until you recognize it, you can't do something about it. And because it's implicit, you're not aware of it. Yeah. And and, you know, so I want you to cede some power as an investigator, cede some agency or authority and give that to the person sitting behind the desk. And that does two things. One, it helps you realize when you're being biased. And two, it gives them a feeling that you're going to be fair. Yeah, that you're going to treat them well because they they have some power now. Yes, it, it, they come into the room, and I've done this. I mean, I've been you know investigator for a long time. These people are scared, they're petrified. They it's it's they know you have the authority that you're making a determination, and what you know that they the, just just the amount of pressure on them, and um you know some folks come in angry. And and for example, the example I give folks is that, look, a black man comes in, he's been accused of sexual harassment mm. and he comes in and he's angry. I don't treat that as evidence. Right. I treat that as an opportunity. That's fight or flight response, right? You're going to see that most of the time, right? In stressful situations. You're going to see that. But in particular, it's also he's carrying the weight and burden of history on his yes. shoulders because, yeah. <laughs> you know, of, of all of that. Here we go so again. I'm, right. Yeah. Exactly. And so I know that when I engage with that person, I have to say, hey, like, I know, you know, that you're probably really afraid um, that I've prejudged you and I want you to understand that I haven't. And let me tell you how I think I know I pre you think I've prejudged you, you know, that you're a black man who's sitting in front of me as a white woman who who you probably think that I, I think you did it. I want you to understand. I understand history. I understand the, the stress that's on you right now. And I, I don't know anything. What I need you to do is tell me your side of the story. And I want to hear it. Right. Right. And, and literally you watch people's shoulders literally go. Yeah. It's shocking. Yeah. But not doing that. You know, I mean, the idea of doing that, I've said to some investigators and they go, what? What? No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Let them interrupt you. People don't want to give up power, though. Yeah. I mean, I will say that, you know, by and large, 
the the population of folks, and there were about 170 in the study total. I mean, that which is considerable. Um, uh, about a hundred. I'm sorry, 190. There was 117 in the internal workplace investigator um, group. So it was it was considerable. Um, that that they by and large believed that they were doing good, that they were trying to help, that they saw themselves as as trying to be helpful. They didn't see themselves as as management shills, um, you know, that they wanted to to find what the facts are. The problem is, is that that's a very biased statement is, you know, what's a fact? I, you know, like I, I the word fair makes me crazy. I hate the word fair. Every time I hear the word fair, I like vomit in my mouth. I'm like, what does fair mean? It, what does it mean to you versus what it means to me? I can tell you in, in the Rittenhouse case that I'm sure that Kyle Rittenhouse thought the outcome was fair. I can tell you that. That you know the families of the folks that 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 were killed um, uh, didn't think that that was a fair outcome. Yeah. So fair is subjective; it means nothing. Um, facts are also subjective at times. Um, you know, and and you know how those facts are treated um, are are is very subjective. How much weight I give certain pieces of evidence is very subjective, and it's very much there's not a science to this. There's an art. Um, people try to to create formulas. They try to create forms. They try to, you know, they do everything in their power to try to come up with something. And the fact of the matter is, is very much an art. Um, and and you have to know sort of all the components that are going into that art project. You have to know, you know, all the things that you're bringing to the table. And if you aren't aware of that, what you bring to the table, you're going to screw it up. You're going to get it wrong. And, um, you know, when it's something really basic, like I had a case once where someone shoved another person. That's pretty straightforward. OK. Um, but when it comes down to something like, um, uh, you know, an investigation into what's called non-protected class stuff, where um, it's not based on race or sex or, or religion or anything like that. Um, and, you know, you've got a supervisor that's bullying another uh, a subordinate. Um, and you're trying to figure out, you know, did this actually happen? Um, what I can tell you is that the study showed that investigators believe that people in those cases contributed to their own bullying by a majority. Um, and so they have an implicit bias there um, toward management. Um, and so in those cases, you know, I'm trying to figure out you know, what what did that person do and was it targeted? Mm. And, you know, sometimes what I would hear from folks is, well, you know, did how, is everybody else being treated that way? And it was the wrong question for people to ask, because, of course not. If they weren't being treated that way, they didn't you know, they weren't experiencing it because these types of bullying situations in the workplace are very targeted, very personal. They will pick things that look innocuous. And and um, they will uh, they will they will target that person in a way that makes it look to the average person like nothing. Hmm. Like, I don't know why you're getting so bothered by that. Um, you know, one situation involved, you know, a, an employee who had applied for a job. Now, supervisor knew that. And um, and that supervisor was harassing that person. And uh, but they had applied for a job. And then at a meeting at a later date, the supervisor said in front of everybody uh, when they introduced the person who ultimately did get the job, which was not the employee that was being harassed. Uh, we we hire 
the only the very best people for this job. Well, the person who was sitting there who had applied for the job, you know, was tearful and 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 very much by it. Yeah. Um, everybody else in the room didn't understand, like, why would that be a problem for her to say that? Yeah. So, you know, it's very targeted. In fact, there's an article called Corporate Psychopath, who uh, they tried to figure out, they did a study trying to figure out what causes this. Why do supervisors behave the way they do? And it really, um, they don't have an answer for it. Uh, you know, it goes back to power and control. When you have power and control, you abuse it. But why do you abuse it? And that's not clear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get into some very deep philosophical questions there about the human nature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it reminds me, uh, and C.S. Lewis talks about this in uh, Screw Tape Letters. Uh, and I, I really... Uh, fortunately, I read that at a young age, and it's always helped with things like uh, these kind of hidden, her this kind of hidden harassment, right? Uh, I think everyone can understand what you're talking about, whether it's corporate or not, in terms of family, right? Yes. The things that, like, I mean, uh, in the example he uses, um, someone can ask what's for dinner or what time is dinner, and to anyone else, like, if you just read those words on a page, it doesn't mean a thing. But at that time and place, it's basically a slap in the face, right? It just speaks volumes uh, based on tons of history, right? That no one else is privy to about your questioning their competence or your, you're like, oh man, you know, it's like, oh, it's, oh, it's tuna salad. And there's so many, <laughs> there's so many uh, variations in tone that matter so much there. Um even as you said, and I'm, I would love for you to give some examples. When you say subjective facts, uh, what would be a good example of that? And I mean, the one that you even said, it's a simple case, but like most people would say, well, he shoved him and that's a fact. But what constitutes a shove can be pretty, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that could be of like, uh, there, there's, there's a boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, like the girlfriend, you know, shoves playfully, right? And is that like, right. uh, it, so, uh, what would, what, can you give an, an example of a subjective fact so that sure. you can, I mean, you know, somebody who says something, um, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to slap you if you keep doing that. Yeah, that's a fact. It's subjective though, because what did it mean? Um, you know, what did it, what did it mean by that? Did you really mean you were going to slap them or did you, were you just kidding around? Yeah. And so there's a subjective component to it where you have to keep digging for more information to figure out what that is. And in a lot of organizations, they've adopted these um, no tolerance policies and they they turn the world upside down in those situations. You know, I, I had an office mate and I love him dearly. Uh, I really do. Um, but at, at one point he would sit behind me and he had a clicky pen. And he click, 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 click. And that's like the bane of my existence. Like, <laughs> you know, like if people wanted to harass me, they'd probably call me on the phone and just press the clicky pen over and over again. <laughs> that little noise stuff makes yeah. me crazy. And uh, it's just enough to just set me off. And, um, and you know, I, I was very mindful because we we're both investigators to not turn around and say, if you keep doing that, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> okay. And, but if I had said it to him, he would have thought it was funny. Yes. But if somebody had heard it, it would have been, a, I would have been charged with a violation of the policy. Yes. Because the, the policy had no tolerance for work. Yes. Um, the policy, however, did have a, an intent mechanism for, uh, or intent requirement for 
physical action, which made no sense to me whatsoever. It was so backward. Um, that, when you talk about, <laughs> yeah, Sorry. it was so backwards. Like it, it made no sense. I, I had no idea who wrote it. I was just like, no, it's just my job to follow it. Okay. Um, and, and there's certain things where you just like, you can only have so many fights over things that like, okay, this is not what I can fight about today. Um, but the, the, the thing about a shove, you're right. So, you know, somebody comes up behind you and, and out of nowhere pushes you, knocking you over. Um, you know, to me, that's that's not subjective because it's not reasonable. No yeah. reasonable. You go to that reasonable person standard, knowing all of the facts, you know, like the omniscient narrator narrator. What what you know, what happened here? The person got into an argument with someone else. They came out and then uh, that person was walking and then the second person shoved them. Yeah. OK, there was no rational basis for shoving somebody, um, you know, in a work environment. You know, if this was an elementary school schoolyard, you might be playing around. Yeah. And it might be a little bit different. So it's subjective. It's yeah. subjective based on context. Yes. Um, so but it, I do. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, um, could you because uh, I don't I don't mind using subjective facts. Would another way to be talk about it would be in terms of like facts and interpretations that are like necessary interpretations. Yeah, I, you know, there's, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's always some subject subjectivity in it. I think that, you know, what you call something, is it a hit? Is it a shove? Is it a punch? Um, you know, is it a tap? Uh, you know, all of those things can, in fact, be the same thing. It's subjective based on the word you use, right? Mm. Um, it, it was, there was some conduct. There was, there was a, something coming in contact with something else. But, but what was it, yes. you know, and what did it mean? And words matter. So what word was used to describe that is subjective, yet we treat that as a fact, right? So Mike shoved Steve. Mike tapped Steve. Mike punched Steve. All of those are the same physical action. Yeah. Okay. But, but. You know, what what did it what 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 that word is yeah. has connotation to it. And so, yes, it's interpretation, but it's also it's 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 also uh, subjective in the sense that that, you know, it's a synonym. These are all synonyms for the same thing. Right. Yes. Um, you know, and uh, and then and then you have to look at the greater context of how did it happen, right. you know. They were sitting at lunch, and when somebody said something to someone else, he tapped him. Yep. He slapped him. Yep. He punched him yep. in the shoulder. All of those things might be completely acceptable in that relationship um, because they know each other really well and work together for a long time, and that's something that goes on all the time. You know, they're always punching each other in the shoulder. Um, and and yet, you know, if you were to take it out of context, that would be a violation of a policy potentially. Yeah. Depending on how the policy is written. Right. And policies are written badly. Yes. R policies are written, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your response to this. Would you say policies are generally written more to protect the company than to actually enforce right standards? It depends on where you are <laughs> and what type of company. No, yeah. really, it depends on what type of company you work for. Um, you know, like in companies where the, the, the policy is written by a group of people, so where it's written by like a committee, like like let's say at a university hmm. or college, uh, where you have like a mixture of people. Um, typically, that's sort of how a camel happens. 
Like you get a group of people that don't have any knowledge about how to write a policy. You know, there's a history professor, there's a philosophy professor, there's an art history professor, there's, you know, somebody works, you know, in janitorial, there's all these people come together, write a policy, and they don't know how to do it. And then it comes to me, and I have to interpret it. And I'm like, where are the elements? How do I figure this out? And, And how do I enforce this? This sounds really aspirational, as opposed to, you know, people who actually know how to write policies. So, you know, Folks who have at least some training in how to do that um, understand that you're looking for some sort of objective test, some objective elements in there. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the example I gave you of things being backwards, that came from a university. I was just like, this makes no sense whatsoever. Like, I don't know how. OK, fine. I got to find intent when somebody hits someone. But when someone says words, no intent. All right. All right. I don't know how I'm going to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and 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 people, what happens is then then these units that are that are doing these investigations, they come up with ways around it. So they create these sort of internal rules about well, we're going to look at the context of the words. Yeah. Even though the policy didn't say that. Yeah. It doesn't say you can't do that. So yeah. we're going to look at the context of the words to read in intent, so that way we can get around the the what is an absurd outcome. Right. But that then applies here, but it doesn't apply in that situation. And, you know, and that's where the social desirability factor comes in because, you know, hey, look over here, this person's really valuable. Yeah. So we don't want to make a finding against them. Yes. And there, you know, sometimes it'll be overt. Organizations will be really overt about it. Hmm. Sometimes organizations will be um, less overt about it. They will do it in sort of subtle ways. They will. Um, you know, they'll, they'll make comments, you know, that will either be supportive of that, of that, let's say, you know, yeah, I think it's going to be a finding and they'll go good. All right, next. And then move on to the next one. And, and as opposed to sometimes what they'll say is we can't make a finding against George. We can't, we can't go win the football game. Can't make a finding against George. And, and so you, you can't do that. And, and there's incredible pressure placed on these investigators, um, to the point where I, in some of my interviews where people talked about circumstances where they had to go above heads, above head, above head, above head to, to say, we're, we are going to make the finding whether you want us to or not. And then you can decide how you want to deal with it. Mm. Yeah. And there's a subjectivity in how is it even going to be investigated? Right. Is there any, you know, uh, yeah, that doesn't sound like it. Ah, no, let's toss that back. No, that's not, we're not going to move forward with that. Or people will sit down and meet with the complainant and they'll say, are you sure you really want to move forward with this? Yeah. And that type of behavior is, is, is again, it's, it's, it, it's social desirability. Do you stand up and want to enforce your rights? Or do you lean in the direction of not wanting to look like you are a problem? And that comes down to something I'm very passionate about, which is um, I think organizations should, uh, they should herald and respect and value the employee that speaks up. Stop calling them the problem. They are telling you there's a problem in your organization. So go fix it. They could sit silently and just let this thing hit you in the face at some point if you want, but they're willing to stand up. 
And organizations don't do that. What they do is they create these cultures and environments where people are afraid to speak and they're afraid to talk. And then, you know, the legal profession has done a tremendous job on this one, which is that employees that have brought lawsuits, what they'll do is they will require the employee to resign as a condition of settling the lawsuit. And um, and so then that person's out of a job. They've got a settlement, but they're out of a job. And so we get that person out of here. Instead of treating them like, hey, you know, there's this great movie called Catch Me If You Can. Yes. And and it's one of my favorites uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, but at the end of the movie, so for your, for your listeners, they don't know it. It's it's this guy who basically is a fraudster and he's able to transform himself into anything. He can be an airline pilot. He can be a um, a, um, a doctor, a anything, you name it, a banker, you name it. And based on um, a true story. It's based on yes. a very true story. Yes. And what happens is uh, the FBI agent chases this guy and chases this guy and chases this guy, finally catches him. And, you know, they they put him put him in jail and he's sitting there and he's like, huh. he realizes at some point he's like, maybe this guy could help us out with this, this um, uh, uh, with the counterfeit stuff, because he was counterfeiting everything. He knew right. how to counterfeit everything. So they bring him into the office and they said, can you tell us if this is counterfeit or not? And he's like. Let me look at it. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, this is totally counterfeit. Let me tell you how they did it. And so what they did was they realized this guy could actually be an asset because he was just so good at doing it. And yes. they had evaded. He had evaded for so long that they brought him in and said, you're an asset. Why wouldn't in an organization when an employee says there is a problem over here and I'm telling you about it? OK, and I'm willing to stand up and say something to you. Why does the organization want to get rid of that person instead of saying, wait a minute, there's some value to this person. They could probably help us fix this. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing, and I have found this to be true, it kind of goes hand in hand, uh, you know, uh, and feel free to disagree. I feel like it goes hand in hand with people who are more concerned about the eight to five and the lack of purpose in their job. And so it's much easier to sweep real problems under the rug and then allow it to be someone else's problem after they retire, or if they can hopefully just let it go away, then actually like maintain excellence in their organization. Do you feel like I, there's a connection I, there? I, yeah, I think that there's what happens. I think what happens in organizations, and and this is this is this is sort of a fascinating conversation in that um, organizations they recruit for diversity, right? And they recruit for not just diversity in person, but in thought. And but then once you join their organization, you're expected to shed that diversity and melt down into this melting pot and become part of their culture and adopt their views and adopt their their belief structures and 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 accept what they accept. And that's the first mistake. Um, if if you're recruiting for diversity, it's because you want diverse thought and and, you know, experience. And so, um, you know, it, to, it, it's when when you step up and, and say something that's that's, um, you know, that's against the family, it's sort of like the mob, you know, it's you, yeah. you spoke out against the family. Um, and, and so we have to, you know, we have to get rid of you. Um, but I think that what happens in these organizations is it's, it's an us versus them mentality. So everybody has adopted this sort of cyborg mentality. And when somebody wakes up and goes, wait a minute, hold on a second, I'm part of the matrix. 
I'm mixing my television shows yes. and movies, <laughs> my well, Star Trek and my Matrix, but it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. They wake up and they go, wait a minute, I'm part of this. What, what, oh, hold on. I took the wrong pill. Hold on. And, 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 and so the rest of the organization says, what are you talking about? No, we aren't doing that. And, and they tamp it down. Um, and so even, even the slightest bit of it, and that then sends a message to other people who may in fact be waking up, they see it and they don't want to have that experience. So they shut up Yes. Um, and they don't say anything. The other problem is that at the very top of the organization, I have no doubt that there are people who have good intentions. And I say this just generally, okay? They have good intentions. They have these ideas. They're idea makers, right? They're, that's their job. They're visionaries. And then they give that information to other people to sort of design and, and carry that out. And then it gets delegated to other people and it gets delegated to other people. It's like the game of telephone. They're leaving out details. There's implicit bias. There's, there's agendas. There's all sorts of things or direct bias that happens. And so what happens is by the time that this message at the very top gets down to the people at the bottom, it's so diluted and so massacred that it, it, it ends up being just wrong. And mm. that's what we end up with, you know? Um, it, it, and then there are hierarchies and there are, you know, fiefdoms and, you know, certain people don't want to be told what to do by other people. And, you know, it, it just there's this stuff that goes on and it's really a cultural problem. And then I see organizations saying, well, we need to fix our culture. Yep, you do, but you actually can't do it by going about fixing your culture. You have your, the, your culture is sort of the result of things that are going on and you have to fix the things that are going on. If you want to have a better result. You mean you can't, just get a, uh, you can't just get like a ping pong table and it just makes everything better. No. Okay. No, no, <laughs> you can't create glossy marketing materials that say that you're fixing your culture. You can't just say you're fixing your culture. You have to actually try to figure out why this is happening. Like truthfully, why yes. this is happening. Yes. And then what you have to do is, is, is fix those individual things. It's one of the reasons why I liked Clark and Estes um, gap analysis so much is that you can literally use it on everything. Like if, for your listeners, like literally you can use it for everything. Mm. So it's the issue is knowledge, motivation and, and organizational factors. So when my husband, okay, doesn't do what I want him to do, I'm trying to figure out, does he not know? what it is yeah. that I want him to do? Does he not know how it is? Is he not motivated to do it? Is there something impeding him there? Is there some sort of self-efficacy issue there? Is there, is, is he, uh, is there an organizational factor? Do we not have the tools and the, the things needed to do the thing that I asked you to do? Literally, you know, he, he practiced law for a while too. So you have two lawyers and then somebody who has this doctorate in organizational change. <laughs> and so I bring these tools to bear and arguments about, well, why didn't you take the Christmas tree down? Did you not know that I wanted to? I know you know how to do it. You've done it in the past. And literally, we discovered that yeah. the, the organizational factor was that the handle broke off of the, 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 where the garage is. We, we live in a, you know, and everybody in L.A. lives, you know, unless you're really rich, lives in a, uh, in a rental. And so somebody broke the, the handle off the garage that is shared with another unit. And, um, and so he couldn't get in. So there was an organizational factor impeding his ability to do what he needed to do something. Yes. I was like, okay, well, have you done anything to fix that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny because I, so I live in a multi-generational house with my parents and, uh, and my wife and my two kids and all the adults at one point were part of a, a student life department and received counseling training. 
And so family meetings, <laughs> I, we don't ever say, how does that make you feel? But it's all variation. <laughs> Until I can tell my dad's just getting impatient and he's just like, okay, like what, what, how can we actually fix this? But, oh man. That, I, that, I do that. We, we debate. We will argue <laughs> with each other and, and it'll be cross-examination. Yes. So yeah. let me see if I understand you correctly. Are you, did you, and, and we'll, 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 you know, it'll become, you know, sort of this double cross-examination. It's hilarious. Oh man. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. That's so funny. Um, we are coming close to time. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, so as we wrap up here, if you don't mind, uh, one question that really stuck out to me and I, I, I think will be really helpful for our listeners, uh, kind of a, a dual question, a follow-up application question. Where does implicit bias hide? Where are the kind of clear places where it hides? And what are the best ways to handle that? Both uh, as the person who is being biased against and as the person who has that bias. Sure. In an investigation context? If you can make it general, that's great. Um, I, if you want to use examples <laughs> from the workplace, I'm sure lots of people can use that information. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I will tell you that it, it hides in, in uh, your feelings about doing something. So, for example, in the study, uh, I asked how, you know, how, how, how likely you were to sort of like or, or how comfortable you were with doing certain types of investigations. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and I sort of laid those out into categories. So if there's something that you have to do mm. and or there's a task that you have to do and you're not doing it, um, there may be you may have an implicit bias against doing it for some reason. And that may be what's driving your procrastination mm. or it may be driving how you feel about the thing that you're doing. So if if in an investigation context, if you are, you know, if you don't like doing sexual harassment cases, you are automatically turned off by the idea of doing them. You're probably going to be biased against the outcome of, of it being true. Uh, so you're going to be biased against what the person who is reporting is telling you because you don't want to do it anyway. Um, and so that applies across the board with anything that you do, with any task that you have to do. Um, how you feel about the task is important. And people don't are not mindful. Mindfulness is a great big thing right now. And, and it's it's a, it's an important thing to understand because how you feel in a given moment really does impact an outcome. Mm. So being self-aware about both when you're procrastinating is important, but also when you find yourself not following through on details, right? Like you're like, yes. you, you just like gloss over stuff because you just want to get it over with. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I could that's, definitely see. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, you, there's a reason why you don't want to do it. Why don't you want to do it? I don't know. I don't want to do it. Why don't you want to do it? What's your feeling about it? Yeah. And you really got to figure out what that is. Um, you know, for a lot of folks, you know, they don't, some people, you know, it's a, feeling of failure. I, I feel like mm. I'm going to fail at doing it. So why would I start it in the first place? I don't want to get to do it. I don't want to do it at all. I don't even start it. I don't want to think about it. And so it gets pushed aside. Um, you know, I don't want to discover what I'm going to discover when I look there. You know, I got to go through the closet and I got to clean out the closet. I don't want to see what's there. You know, I, I don't know what I tossed in there. Um, and, and I'm probably going to find stuff that I don't want to see. And I didn't, you know, I don't want to deal with. I mean, it, it can literally apply to anything, yeah. um, but but it's implicit bias that's at play. And it, it is, you know, it's a it's a feeling that is driving your actions based on on, on neuroscience. Yes. Um, 
And, and so it comes down to just the most basic stuff. Yes. So, uh, so for instance, if you find yourself procrastinating on something, um, if you find yourself glossing over and wanting to finish things without doing it correctly, um, would an appropriate response be like to do a history check in your own story to find if there's a connection with a past event? Yeah, I think that the, it makes sense to, first thing is to just stop and figure yeah. out, you know, don't continue doing it. Stop, mm. recognize there's a problem, identify that you know you have an issue, take a break from it and and sit and, and think about, you know, what's, why? The, the question why is great. It's, it's, you know, so why am I doing this? Okay, well, why that? And why that? And why that? And continue to move backward with the word why. Uh, Simon Simonek has this, has this, you know, what's your why? Yes. Um, if, yeah. if you don't know your why, you, you, you better know your why. Yes. Okay. And so, uh, if, if you're, if your listeners haven't, haven't heard of him or read any of his stuff, they should, uh, he's got some really accessible stuff on YouTube. Um, some of the most powerful, uh, talks I've ever seen. Um, but you need to know your why. And, um, and so that's a good way to, to think about those issues. So if you're glossing stuff over and you're realizing you're missing details or, or you suspect, you know, you, you feel yourself doing that, you feel yeah. yourself rushing or something, um, then, then stop. Why am I doing this? Am I hungry? Yes. <laughs> am I tired? Yeah. Am I like, literally, I mean, it sounds silly and basic, but at the same time is why am I doing this? Mm. And, you know, and do I, do I, okay, I don't like the person I'm writing it for. I don't like the fact that, that I have to write in the first place. Why don't I like the fact that I have to do it in the first place? You know, really work yourself back so that you can understand the whys. And once you figure out the whys, then you can figure out what to do about that. Mm. You know, sometimes it's a frame shift. Sometimes it's changing the way you think about it, which is that, you know, if I do this, then what are the positive things that can stem from it? Mm. Um, I think that we are generally, I, I make a guess, I haven't done the study on this, but I make a guess that we are generally gap analysis thinkers. We are, we are people who think in the negative. Mm. We don't think about positive and, you know, I, I'm not a positive all the time person. I'm very much a gap person. I always think about what the problem is because I'm a problem solver, but, um, there's, my husband is not a problem solver. He is very much a, 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 uh, you know, everything will work out sort of thing. Um, so it works nicely that way. Um, but, um, so when I go down the railroad tracks, he, he, he says, I don't come back up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, everything's not going to be bad. Um, and so, but thinking about, you know, what are some positive benefits that can stem from me doing this? Well, if I clean out the closet, Hey, I can go shopping yeah. or, you know, Hey, you know, if I clean out the closet, that won't be hanging over my head and I can get something else done. And I can actually really enjoy watching the football game because it won't be hanging over my head. Um, you know, I, maybe I can turn it into a fun activity with my kids or with my spouse or with my, you know, my neighbor or whatever. Um, you know, maybe I can donate some things to charities that, that might need them. Um, you know, you start to try to reframe why you're doing something and, and then it changes your, your willingness to do it. Um, and, you know, but again, it comes down to awareness. So you have to be aware that that's what you're doing. Like, you know, yes. you're rushing through something or you're glossing it over or you're avoiding it. Um, excuses. Excuses are my favorite. Um, you know, what are the excuses that you put in place that that for why you're not doing something? Right. Um, people can justify anything. Oh, they can. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. as a as a parent to a four and six year old, uh, it's much more apparent and easy. Right. 
to look at that and be like, oh, that excuse is silly. But then when you're around it enough and then you hang out with adults and you're like, oh, it doesn't go away. <laughs> and there's truth to it. Yeah. Like there's just truth to it. You know, the reason why they want to do something, you know, I mean, I love, you know, little kids in the bathtub. Like, I don't want to take a bath. Why don't you want to take a bath? I don't want to take a bath. Why don't you want to take a bath? I don't want to take a bath. Okay. What are you afraid of? You know, yeah. oh, the water going down the drain. They think they're going to go down the drain. You know, really little kids get really afraid. They yeah. don't want that and say, okay, well, let's see, see how big you are. Yes. See how big that is. That's not going to happen. You know, yeah. and, and, and sometimes it takes, you know, some education yeah. to change the way someone's thinking. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it takes perspective taking like what, you know, what's the perspective and, and trying to, to reshape that. But in, in taking that basic example in the adult context, mm. I think that in workplaces, in relationships, in, in social situations, people fail to recognize the perspective of others. Mm. And, and I've seen that a lot lately. I mean, I, I, you know, look, if you don't want to get the vaccine, stay home is part of my personal belief. But, 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 you know, I need you to take the vaccine because I don't want to get sick or at least I want to get seriously sick. Yeah. Um, I respect your perspective, but if your perspective is based on the fact that you think that you have a, a computer chip that's going to be injected into you, we need to have you take a look at what a syringe looks like and understand that that syringe doesn't actually is incapable of doing that. Right. You know, I mean, like there's just stuff that makes no sense. And, right. but yet I respect your perspective. Yeah. But let me tell you how that perspective needs to shift. Right. And here's some ways of doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, I just think that, that we need to, you know, we, I'm not a big, you know, Hey, we, we, we aren't divided. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be divided sort of thing. We've always been divided. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's part of our history. It's, it's why, you know, we were divided against the King. That's why we overthrew him. Um, at least in, in, on this continent. Yeah. Um, it is a matter of, of understanding a perspective and, 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 and at least just appreciating it for what it is. You can disagree with it, but at least listen to it yeah. and, and then try to work with people to change that perspective. Um, you know, because I think that one of the things we, we don't do is we don't talk enough. Mm. Um, and, and when we, we don't do talk, talk, we shout. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, just... we shout and we, yeah. we call each other names. Yeah. I, I, I saw something recently and this is sort of, I know we're getting to the end here, but I, this one drove me crazy. I saw a video on some, we were talking before the show about reels and how mm -hmm. like you can become like, you know, sort of uh, paralyzed by watching these things. Absolutely. You just have been watching them for hours. Um, but there was uh, someone who was screaming at, so clearly an anti-mask, anti-vaxxer who was screaming on the street in New York at people saying that if you're wearing a mask, you're either ugly or you're into sex trafficking. And, and I was like, okay, I'll be ugly. I'm happy to be ugly. It's fine if I'm ugly. And, and, and I, you know, I, this is very political, but if, you know, I'm, if, you know, the GOP, I think wants me to be a sex slave anyway. So if, if, if you think that that's what I am by wearing a mask, I'm good, but at least I'm living, I'm going to live. Okay. And, and, you know, but I mean, people screaming at each other right. like this, right. It's just insane. And yeah. just like, what do you not have a job to go to? Yeah. Like, why are you, <laughs> like, you got time for this? Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, we've become a country of, of insulting people has become okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there needs to be that common respect uh, for human dignity. Uh, it's just so important for these discussions that like the other person is still a human being, no matter what they believe, right? And that's so that's so important. Um, so I, I love ending on that note, and I love uh, uh, you know even as we talk about implicit bias, like the importance of uh, relying on uh, empathy and and looking at the other person's perspective is so important, and just that self awareness that we do make mistakes. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a real joy. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun being here.